On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Scott today, we're going to talk about the move to tear down the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Hamilton. Why would we do this? The councillor who is pushing this motion is going to explain why this should happen. We're going to be talking about a new advertising method. Uh, There are concerns about this one. Advertising to you while you sleep burrowing jingles or whatever else into your brain to get you to buy something without you knowing you're being advertised to. You okay with that? We're going to talk about it. And if it seems like everybody is a little angry these days because of COVID, well, the numbers would back that up. Why are we so filled with rage? We're going to tell you. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show on this blisteringly hot Tuesday afternoon. Glad you are with us. Scott Thompson in for Scott Radley. Just a changing of the Scots this week as Scott, the other Scott, enjoys a few more days of vacation. My goodness, as I said the other day, Scott Thompson over the years has somehow got the, he knows the weeks to take. He, he His record of choosing exceptional weather weeks to take off for a vacation. My goodness, the guy, he should be, there should be like a Scott Thompson psychic hotline. Remember Jojo's psychic Alliance once upon a time, Scott Thompson should take that up. If, if the radio thing ever doesn't work out for him, a call line, a 900 number for, for weather predictions, he, he, he might be better than some of the other ones. Just saying, glad you're with us though. Uh, it is, it is, a crazy hot day out there. So I hope you're staying cool, staying hydrated, staying somewhere sheltered and being comfortable while you listen to the show today, because we have a gigantic lineup as we have for days. Now, Jordan, who looks after getting the show booked, Jordan has just been, I was going to say on fire, but under the circumstances with the weather today, probably a poor choice of words to start out today. Of course, uh, controversy is uh, is an understatement when we're these days talking about statues and naming right, not naming rights, things that are named after people from the past and and historical records and whether things should be removed or not removed or preserved or not preserved. Well, one of those things is now front and center in the city of Hamilton. A Hamilton councillor, Ward 3 councillor Narinder Nan, is going to be bringing forward a motion to have the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald removed. That's going to come up at a soon-to-be-held council meeting. So, should it? Should it not? Let's bring in Councillor Nan. We're glad to have her here. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate your time. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you doing? I'm, look, I, I'm, I'm cool. I'm in my basement. I'm not burning up, so that's a good start. We'll, uh, we'll go, we'll go from there. <laughs> um, the idea, anytime someone proposes taking down a statue, the alternative view that people put forward is, let's not take the statue down. Let's put up a plaque that reflects both the positive and the negative and the, the good and the bad. Why not that as opposed to removing the statue? Scott, how did you feel a few ba- weeks back when you learned about the children who were found and confirmed to be found in the unmarked graves in Kamloops at the residential schools? It was a it was a terrible story. It was a terrible story. Un- unquestionably, it is an absolutely terrible story and a heartbreaking story for all the families of the people who, who were involved in that. Absolutely. So not only heartbreaking for the people who were personally impacted, having their children stripped away from their families, and coded away from their culture and coded away 
from their identity as Indigenous people, it was also absolutely impactful for every single Canadian because I think the foundation of our understanding of this country got rocked. And it continues to get rocked with every unmarked grave that continues to be confirmed at each residential site that we've been hearing of pretty much on a weekly basis since that moment, right? And the, that rocking of our foundation has called into question everything that we have claimed to know as being the foundation of our lives here, right? So I'm a settler. I'm not Indigenous, like you, right? Yep. Um, I benefit from living on this land. I benefit from the colonial exercise that led to the founding of our country. And do I benefit from that? 100%. Do I benefit from being a Canadian? I love being a Canadian, right? Um, I'm a child of immigrants. I was born in this country. My people fled here when it was the right place to come. Uh, do we benefit from that? 100%. But you and me don't matter in this equation. And here's why. Sir John A. Macdonald, back in 1879, made it very clear that in his attempts and success in setting up the residential school system, he said that when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training modes of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as the head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do this would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. And the atrocities, so the quote's over, right? But the atrocities of the residential school system have been smack put in front of each one of our eyes as Canadians and has been described as a systematic government-sponsored attempt to destroy Indigenous people across this country. That's documents. Those are Canadian government documents. So when Indigenous residents across Hamilton have been telling Hamilton City Council and the City of Hamilton since 2015 that they are experiencing ongoing profound grief, trauma and harm by having the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald on public display in Gore Park, we have an obligation as a municipality to care for our neighbors. And when people are telling us that they're being harmed, we have an obligation to remove that harm. If your neighbor was grieving, what would you do? You would show up and, and show up and respond as best as possible. You would care for the people whose hearts have been broken repeatedly and are walking through that grief. If taking down this statue provides a bit more comfort and ease for our 17,000 Indigenous, for the residents who identify as Indigenous in Hamilton, then I think that that's a step that we can take, a demonstrative and simple action that Hamilton City Council can take. Put the statue in storage. Give us the time that is needed to have that conversation that you're talking about through a process and a proper channel and figure out what way we want to commemorate our history, acknowledge our history in the form of landmarks on city property. One, one of the questions... our obligation. One of the questions that comes out of what you've just said about the idea of should we, if, if this, if people are upset by this, then these things should be taken down. Uh, and you know this, this has been brought up a lot. Where does that go? Where does that lead? Because, um, okay, if so, if Sir John A. Macdonald is taken down, and we know that in Toronto, the Ryerson statue has been taken down, 
Um, d- where do we find the line where we say, okay, th- this person did something bad, so it must go, or we're okay with some of the things? Because there's an awful lot of people then, a lot of street names, a lot of statues, a lot of buildings. Where is the line that we find that we say we can live with that or we can't live with that? Yeah, I think that, Scott, like, ideally our cities and communities and our neighborhoods should be places that are harmonious and peace-filled and unifying for our, for our people, all people, right? And so when it comes to street names, when it comes to monuments, I think we can evolve past the way that we've done things in the past and say that we, we care enough about the way people feel when they're walking down the street, that we will take away things that cause harm. And instead, encourage a thoughtful, engaged conversation where we can analyze our, our present context against past decisions. And I think that that requires a facilitated space. Like museums are a wonderful place to engage in that kind of dialogue where people who are ready to have the conversation enter the halls of a museum, look at the statues, understand the context, take in the information that's made available, and come out transformed in some way or come out more informed in some way to be able to engage back into our communities and have thoughtful conversation. What I'm not interested in here is to, you know, continue the lightning rod reactionary uh, kind of reality that these monuments and, and landmarks unfortunately have have created in our city and And that's and that's fair that's fair but again my point my only point becomes there are a lot of them i mean uh in in your ward in your ward the beasley neighborhood richard beasley historically owned slaves should we be changing the name of beasley dundas has come up in toronto should the town of dundas have its name changed i mean it Mm. it opens uh, it opens a difficult question about an awful lot of things and again i think a lot of people who look at this discussion say if we take down uh, there's things that Sir John A. Macdonald did that I don't like. But if we take yep. this down, how far do we keep doing this? And are we going to be doing this forever to try and cleanse any bad deeds? Well, I think it's a it's a conversation that we all need to start having. And and I think it's really important that people are saying, you know, wait, somebody was a slave owner and we have his name up on on our city. Our na- our city is named after a slave owner. And those 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 realities are not actually b- drawn out in any other way, right? Like we are we're almost going about our existence on a daily level quite oblivious to the the white supremacy the harm the racism and uh you know all all that nastiness that is part of the foundation of these cities and our communities and i think that that it it's it's is it enough to say let's just strip out all the names and replace them with names that are more neutral no What's more needed here, I think, Scott, is being able to be to have these hard conversations mm. and challenge the truth and take take it on. Um, and that doesn't come from a statue. That comes from really thoughtful engagement and, and like I said, facilitated spaces where people can opt into that conversation. What well, I do know you- is I don't want people to be harmed anymore in our communities. That's that's clear. We don't need to be continuously, repeatedly telling a certain segment of our population that their their experiences don't matter. And then by saying that we don't want to take down the statue, we're essentially saying to Indigenous people, we'd rather you continue be traumatized on a daily basis. And I don't think Hamiltonians want that for our neighbours. Let me ask you a difficult question. And and, and this is, I think this is an absolutely fair question. I really do. And um, it's one that has sort of been glossed over, I think, in a lot of discussions about this. Does it matter 
that Sir Johnny McDonald, that Henry Dundas, that whomever you want to bring up, Ryerson, whatever, that the were these were men of their time, that their views were very commonplace at the time. They weren't outliers, that this was the the norm and this was the societally accepted view. Does that in any way change um, the perspective that what they did was by our through our modern lens that we find atrocious now was do we see it any differently? I, I challenge that that interpretation of history because history only allows us to read the dominant thought of those who are documented. And you and I both know, right, that the dominant thought at that time that was being documented was that of white men. So how do I know that white women felt that way? How do I know that other diverse populations of Canadians felt that way? Was it acceptable? I'm not clear. If, if Canadians of that time and era had the choice about accepting the humanity of the first people on this country, on these lands, versus not, I think that would be much more interesting to hear about versus this washover that, you know, we should accept these men for their actions in the context in which they lived. I don't believe that that's true. I don't believe that, and, and that, may that, be right. that that dominant view was, in fact, the reality. I think it's what we have documented that is in a practice of documentation that has excluded so many people who never uh, agreed to that dominant view in the first place. So that, that entire premise, I believe, is, is flawed, right? It's, and if you flipped it and said, you know, imagine that we continued only hearing particular voices uh, and and a political opinion or political thought uh, in that same vein today, and left out the diversity that we celebrate every single day, and people you know of diverse thoughts like you and I right now having an opportunity to have a conversation with the viewing public or listening public. Um, if if white supremacist thought was still the dom- dominant, took up the dominant space of media and pop culture. Um, then what I have to say here today, right now, wouldn't be heard. And that would be a disservice to so many of the residents that I I have the honor and and privilege of representing here in the city. We only Um, have a few seconds left. I wish we had... Also also as as the only racialized person around that table. Mm-hmm. I, I wish we had more time and and because it's a it's a really interesting conversation and, and let me ask you one more thing before we have to go. What is sure. then Sir John A's place in in this country because I mean the, the, obviously the the move to remove the statue is based on the negative the the bad things that he did, but many people would say, but there's an awful lot of good things he did that made us a country so so how do we balance? his role in the country, his role in the formation of the country, um, and this, it, does, the, does the negative automatically wash out the positive? See, that cancel culture comment right there is problematic, right? The truth is that he, there's, there's the truth, <laughs> and that is all of the above, that he started the residential school system, he had racist views of Indigenous people, he had racist views of other people of colour, he had misogynistic views of women. He had very sexist views about society moving forward. Did he also call for the creation of a national railroad? Yes. Did he also play the parliamentary role of, of leading us towards a country that is what we know as present-day Canada? Yes. So let's have that wholesome conversation. 
and not only whitewash it or or I don't mean that in the racial term of it. I meant it in terms of, you know, uh, only holding on to a certain portion of what should be celebrated and never acknowledge the the reality of the harm that that this that this representative uh, also played in the country. I think we have an obligation. Uh, as a society today, especially as we're thinking about, you know, in this post-pandemic world, through the pandemic, we're all in this together. Through the pandemic, we're holding on to the compassion that we had for each other and the seeking out for each other's humanity and really, like, trying to back each other up to survive that the, the, the uncertainty of this time. And so from that same place, let's look at these hard questions that we've avoided in the past and find a, a reasonable way moving forward. And, you know, Scott, I think that I agree with you. I would love to have more of these conversations. I think we need to be able to, as a society, talk about things that are complex in a way that don't harden us into positions, but really seek to expand our understanding of each other and find some common ground so that yeah, we can and, and I gotta run, unfortunately. come out of this in, in, in a human spirit. Yeah. And thank you. And, and I'm sorry, I'm way, over, I'm way over time. And so I hate to cut you off. I really do. But no I, I agree with you. I agree with you that I think we need less shrill screaming and more talking about these things. And it would probably do us way, way better. Uh, listen, I, as I say, I wish we had a lot more time, another time for sure. Counselor Narinder Nan, okay. Ward 3 Counselor, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this today. Take care. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I got a question for you. And this is from your own personal experience, so draw on that. But when you're asleep, you're lying there in bed asleep, what what gets into your brain? What do you think? What do you think your brain absorbs as you're lying there asleep? Some people would think that we are susceptible to all kinds of subliminal messages. Others believe, no, you know what, I'm out. I don't remember anything. You probably I don't know if any of us know for sure. We have scientists who would tell us things. I, I'm, I'm no expert, so I don't know. But most of us, as I say, don't really know. Well, even that being the case and understanding that there is some, clearly we are told that your brain is open. It's a bit of a sponge in some ways while you're asleep. Um, advertisers seem to have found their new way to get their message to you while you're asleep. Coors is now trying to advertise to you while you are sleeping to burrow its message into your subconscious. So when you wake up at six in the morning, you are parched for some ice cold Coors banquet or whatever else it is. What they want you to do now, I don't know who's going to volunteer for this, but what they're asking people to do is to watch a short video right before you go to bed and then listen to an eight hour soundscape as you sleep. And your brain, I guess, is going to do the rest. And you're going to hear lovely messages, I guess, about beer in the, in the midst of this, you know, waterfall noise or whatever else. I'm not really sure. Will it be effective? Hmm. Don't know. Let's find out. Will it be sell more beer? Again, let's find out. Uh, biggest question. Will it be ethical? Ah, Mm. Uh, David Soberman is the Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing with the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He joins us now. David, thank you for doing this today. Good afternoon. Let's Before we get into the ethics and get into the really deep philosophical part of this, can we acknowledge at the very least that what Coors is doing is pretty darn creative. <laughs> I mean, the idea to come up with this was someone came up with an interesting idea and said, well, we haven't tried this yet. 
yes, it's certainly creative. Whether it works is another another issue. Of course. Um, but certainly one of the things they're doing is they're creating, creating engagement with their customers because for this to have any effect, you have to convince someone to, first of all, watch a video and then play a tape for eight hours while you're asleep. And whether anyone actually does that is um, debatable, but it's still an interesting idea. Well, and I wonder if what they're doing right now with by asking people to do this, if this is just the test drive. Let, let's let's take some volunteers right now and see if this works. See if they wake up parched before we launch into something that's a little more or a little less voluntary. Um, perhaps, though, I still think that you're going to need to have a pretty convincing argument to get people to play music or soundtracks while they sleep. I mean, most people that I know pretty much need sort of quiet in order to fall asleep. And uh, this sort of goes against that. So it's more interesting from a, from an experimental perspective and trying to understand if things that occur while you're sleeping can affect you when you wake up. I think that's an interesting question. And, you know, sure many is. psychologists have different perspectives on that. Sure it is. And again, let's let's go to your marketing part before we get to the ethics of this again. And, and that is this. Um, advertising, it, let, let's go back to something that probably is not a truly great reflection, but many people watch Mad Men. We have some idea how the advertising world works, if only fictionally. But it, it's all about finding new ways to get your product into the eyes and ears of the customers, right? You're, you're doing anything you can to find a new way that'll work. For sure. I mean, one of the things that's a big challenge for marketers is to try to get on to the radar scope of someone who's looking for a product in a given category. And if they don't know about your product or know about the brand, then chances are that sale will go to a competitor. So mm. the ability to sort of be um, top of mind is something which marketers always need to think about when they're trying to manage their products. And it's hard these days because many of the traditional ways that we would have advertised or people would have advertised are less effective now. I mean, you can PVR a TV commercial, you can flip the pages of the newspaper, you can flip over online ads. It's not all that easy unless someone's looking for your product. It's not all that easy to stand out. That's absolutely true. And on top of that, there's really increased clutter. Um, as I recall, yes. something like 30 years ago, they said we were exposed to something like 80 to 100 advertising messages per day. And now people estimate that that number is three or 4,000 per day. Things that you're seeing are actually ads or brand names or logos. You're seeing many, many examples of this within a day. And so the ability to try to stand out and get someone's attention is very challenging. Yeah, no kidding. That would be like standing in a room with everybody yelling and then having an opera singer and you're trying to appreciate the music in the din. I mean, it, it just, it, it's such a, an overstimulation. It's just impossible almost, unless you're brilliant. Absolutely. Or unless you pay somebody a lot of money who is really well known and everybody will look towards that person. So for example, if Justin Bieber walked into a party with 4,000 people, people would notice him because he's Justin Bieber which have got, once again explains why sometimes companies will try to get famous spokespeople for their products as a way of simply trying to get through the clutter. 
So the one place where we don't have, and you've touched on this, the one place we don't have clutter because we often, most of us need silence is our sleep. Are you comfortable with advertisers tapping into that or trying to then get into that last frontier of free brain space? Well, I think that we have to distinguish between two things. One is what um, companies may do that you're not aware of and what companies do that you're aware of. And so in the case where a company asks you to play a tape for eight hours while you sleep, you're probably already a pretty committed Coors drinker. And you <laughs> I would say long, so. Right? I would say, yes. Yeah, but you contrast that with something which is done that you're not aware of that is affecting your behavior. That's quite different, and that is where ethics comes into it. So the best examples of these um, come from the 1950s and 1960s, um, and it was this whole topic of subliminal advertising, which there are regulations against. And what used to occur at drive-ins is that within 20 fr- the, the 25 frames that would play in a movie, they would take one of the frames out and put in a picture of a hot dog or a picture of a soft drink. And while you wouldn't be aware that you're actually seeing those pictures, it would suddenly create a desire for a hot dog or drinks. And so the drive-ins used to sort of make extra sales of hot dogs and drinks because of these frames. Now, that was outlawed because people really weren't aware of what was going on. So I think once companies start going down that road of sort of trying to do things that you're not aware of that are affecting your behavior, I think that's a a much more slippery slope than asking somebody to do something and saying, this will make you like our product more, make you you thirsty when you wake up. That's quite different. Uh, Yeah. And and I do agree with your position, by the way, you got to be a pretty committed Coors drinker to sign up to have more advertising bombarded into your head, make you even want more beer. If you love beer that much, you probably don't need to be convinced to drink more beer, but who knows? I, as I said, it may be just a test. The, the, the technology though exists for this. Like once upon a time, this would have been difficult because you would, as you say, you would have had to have put on a tape or a record or a TV or something. Now, how many homes have, uh, Alexa devices or Google Home or something where, you know, we're, we're tapped into, we're connected all the time. So whether it's happening or not, the technology exists to do this. Absolutely. I mean, I think you raise a very good point. If you go back to the previous technology, there were certainly, certainly no long play records that would play for eight hours or cassette tapes or even videotapes. And so with streaming technology, this becomes uh, something which is within the realm of possibility. Luckily, as I say, it's sort of something that you have to get the person to agree to. I think, um, you know, one of the things that obviously is a concern, as you mentioned, sort of Alexa and Siri, and the fact that our digital devices might be listening to us, that also is an area of concern for marketers, because they may be collecting information that you're not really aware of, and they may be then using that to market products to you. So that's different. For me, it's always this issue. If I'm doing, if if as a company I'm doing something that the consumer's not aware of, that raises an ethical concern. I remember reading something 
months ago where there were some anecdotal things where people were talking to their spouse in their home about, you know, oh, it'd be fun to go to Turks and Caicos this winter. And not long after there was some sort of ad that popped up on their computer for two Turks and Caicos. And they were saying the only possible way is if my Alexa or my Google home or whatever else was listening, which they're not supposed to be doing. Cause unless you talk to them, they're supposed to be off, but there's a lot of people who already are very suspicious about these things. Oh, for sure. And, and I think that that is the sort of thing where people have valid concerns. And, you know, I think the privacy rules need to be strict and we need to sort of make sure that uh, these things aren't going on because in that case, I mean, in this particular case, if you see an ad for Turks and Caicos, um, that's probably not a huge cost to the person that had this information used. But we can also think of many examples where information from a private discussion with your spouse could be something that's uh, quite private that the person could actually suffer from the behavior of companies if that information is, is taken and used. The, this is, so the, let me back up for a second. This kind of thing has been done before, not in the context we're talking about. Uh, using dreams and using your sleep to create behaviors is something that has been used in some cases to get rid of bad behaviors. Apparently there have been methods used while you're sleeping to get rid of the smoking habit, for example, which they say has worked. And so if that has worked, there's no reason to think this wouldn't work. Well, absolutely. And I think that I think I think that, you know, in psychology, um, the study of dreams and their effect on your you and the um, wake the world when you're awake, you know, goes back to the early studies of psychoanalysis and Sigmund Freud who wanted to sort of analyze your dreams and try to understand them. And so if your dreams are affecting life in the real world, then clearly if you can sort of do things in the dreams, you may be able to have effects. But I think what's interesting too about those stories is that in this particular case, I think you've got alignment and full information. So you have a person who goes to a doctor who says, I have a problem. I really would like to quit smoking and then they go through dream therapy in order to get rid of their, or to reduce the likelihood that they continue to smoke. Now, I think in this case, the person knows that it's being done to them. The doctor right. is doing right. it to try to help them, and everybody's incentives are aligned. Um, the problems occur when people have different incentives, but it's still taking place. And when there's not full information, so you can always think of that. Are the incentives of all the people involved aligned? And does everybody have full information? And if you can sort of answer yes to those two questions, you can probably feel more comfortable that something bad isn't taking place. But the minute that there's people who aren't really informed of what's happening to them, or you have one person wants X and the other person wants Y, but the person who actually wants X is getting Y, that's when there's a problem. There's something else from that, you know, using dreams to change behaviors or whatever that I found fascinating and, and fits into what we're talking about. You, you have mentioned, I think accurately that you have to at least volunteer. You have to know. And it's probably, it would be illegal not to do that. But in these behaviors, apparently 
what has happened, they say, is that words or sounds have been used repeatedly while you're awake. You're talking about something, you're, you keep hearing this, it, it paints this picture. Then while you're asleep, all you have to hear is that sound in order to trigger a dream, they're saying. Well, if that's the case, how do you possibly prove, even if you're the government saying, I think what they're doing is illegal, how do you prove that, say, a dinging of a bell at a certain pitch is an advertisement, even though it could... A guess spark a thought or spark a dream about that product like it's all it's really deep and really weird but it, it's it's not quite as simple as saying well you just can't have a Coors jingle playing while you sleep you may not need to have a Coors jingle playing one sound might do it no you're absolutely right and i think one of the things that this points to is that um often when we think of topics we like to classify things as acceptable or not acceptable as good or as bad and the reality of all these things is that there's really a continuum between the things that are clearly unacceptable and to the things that actually seem okay and i think what you're pointing to is that there's a whole set of things that are in the gray zone. And the problem with things in the gray zone, it's really hard to prove cause and effect. So you may find that this ding, which is part of a song, actually creates a desire for this product. And you do a test with 100 people, and normally 30 people would choose the product, and now 32 people choose it. And you say, well, that's significant. But once again, it's much more of a gray zone argument mm -hmm. than something like the example I gave earlier about subliminal advertising, where they would basically have paired drive-in theaters, one which put the frames of the hot dogs in the actual movie, and the other which didn't. And the one that did, would, they would consistently sell 20 or 30% more hot dogs. That was, that was why the government legislated against that. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things we think about. There's always going to be stuff in the gray zone, and it's definitely harder to stop that. I will say this. we got to run. If, it was, if it's that easy to do that we can train people to have a certain sound lead to a certain dream, maybe these advertisers should abandon the whole thing with Coors or whatever other product and just create a product where people can have, can set up what happy dreams they want when they sleep. You could sell that product for a lot more money. Absolutely. That's... <laughs> That's a good point. Or, or conversely, you can even go back to some of the more well-known things, which is um, Coca-Cola especially used to have very, very familiar jingles. And you would hear yes. those jingles, and it would make you think of Coke. And that's something which they seem to have moved away from, and I think one might ask why. Now you've got me singing that song on the hilltop with all the hippie people. I, exactly. I'm, I'm going to be humming that one for the rest of the day. Yeah, <laughs> David right. Silberman, the Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing with the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Great topic and great conversation. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is something that I certainly have noticed. I think most people will have noticed this. And we now seem to have some numbers to go with this. And it's the idea that it seems that over the last 18 months, and not even the full 18 months, as COVID, as the pandemic and quarantine and everything has dragged on, people's tempers have been shorter. There's been more anger. People are mad about everything. Everything sets people off. There is rage. And not everybody, but we see it. The world seems like an angry place a lot of these days. 
And a poll has been done now, a few months ago it was done actually, of thousands of Canadians across the land from coast to coast. And one of the things that showed up is, yes, I have been angry during COVID. Somehow, not necessarily the virus, but the circumstances around the virus have made me angry. So if we accept those numbers and we accept that that is true, why is that the case? I want to bring in Dr. Peter Beeling. He's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. He is vice president and director of the Mental Health and Addiction Program at St. Joseph's Hospital. He joins us now. Dr. Beeling, thanks for the time today. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, see, mad. you sound, you, I was going to say, you sound totally not angry. You're, you're blowing yeah. <laughs> the whole premise of this right off the bat. Yeah. Um, that said, are you surprised at all that this would be the case, that this situation has seemed to light a fire under a lot of people? No, I think I think it reflects my experience uh, living, living here in the city and uh, with friends and neighbors and family. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, the, the data signals have been pretty clear when, when people are surveyed, they're... Um, they're irritated. They're sick of it. Um, you know, lots of people think that uh, what's happened to us has been an overreach uh, to some extent. I, I'm not saying it has. I don't think it has. Um, but we have a natural inclination to want to protect our autonomy and, and making our own decisions for ourselves. I was going to ask why why something like this would, and you've just st- started to touch on it there, but why would rules, and I think really that sounds like what this is, that rules, why would that set us off? Well, you know, we have a, I think this goes cross-cultural. It's not just on, you know, Western civilization and notions of sort of political liberty, but but it is related to that, um, that, uh, you know, uh, more or less life and the pursuit of happiness, that we get to make our own decisions. Um and uh, of course, this this uh, this virus doesn't care about that, and uh, and and spreads in the way that it spreads. Uh, therefore, you know, public health officials, government governments of all stripes are in a position to sort of tell us like this is what you can and can't do. Uh, at least that's how I read a, lo- a lot of the survey responses. Um, and I think we feel uh, ag- ag- aggrieved by that. That you know, um, that needs to be properly justified. I think it is, but. You know, but still, that's gonna that's gonna wear away at us. Um, and when we do, when we are out, um, and I think uh, you know, it's just listening to the good traffic news that there isn't as much traffic uh, as there <laughs> might be on an average uh, day in July. Um, still, when we're in those situations and somebody crosses us, you know, the uh, the the cutoff in the lane or whatever, I think that we're we're quick to be angry because we're 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 on the edge, right? Um, it's like, I just went for my first drive, and now I'm being cut off. I just <laughs> went to my first restaurant patio, and now I have to wait. You know, how dare you, right? Uh, and I think yeah. that we're all seeing it through kind of our own sort of self-centered lens. And I'm sympathetic, but, of course, we can't all be in the same lane at the same time or on the same patio at the same time. We still have to take turns. It's an interesting position because I, I'm wondering, and, and you're not a historian. I mean, you're a, you're a neuroscientist and in, in psychiatry and behavior. But have we always been like this, or was there a time when we were a more compliant people, so that if the government said we need to do this, the people would have said, "Okay, I'll do it." Because it seemed that in the past we were more will—not we, not you and I—but people were more willing to accept these edicts. 
Well, you know, uh, that is that is interesting, and, and you're absolutely right. I'm not a historian in, in any professional sense at all. But, of course, lots of people like me have looked back at the last great global pandemic, um, right, the, the Spanish, so-called Spanish influenza. Uh, and there are a lot of similar trends at that time that, you know, uh, people did not want necessarily to follow follow the directions. What's frustrating for me is that um, in 1919, you can kind of imagine, I think, what the state of public education was um, in terms of science. We are in 2021, uh, and I think that uh, COVID has frustrated uh, me and I think lots of my colleagues in healthcare because people don't seem to get the science uh all too quickly, um, and that a lot of conspiracies are trafficked in because people really cherry-pick numbers, you know. Um, the, the greatest example lately, I'm, I would think, is to sort of say, well, there, there, there's one person affected by a side effect from a vaccine, uh, and it was a serious thing, and therefore nobody should get a vaccine. You know, that's, uh, that's a very unreasonable mathematical conclusion to draw from. From, from what we're seeing, um, so so some things haven't changed. Uh, I think I think human beings still you know want to chart their own course. That's kind of wired into our DNA. Um, but uh, but I think our understanding of science unfortunately hasn't come as far as you would have thought in a hundred years. So is it that we don't like rules, or is it that we're okay with the rules that we're used to, and if you suddenly give us new rules that we have to adjust our life and we're not familiar with, we don't like those ones. Yeah, completely. Because you know there there are different cultures with with uh, and and you know different nations with 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 different rules entirely. And I think that people in those countries will often uh, accept those. Um, you know, our, our neighbor to the south accepts, for example, a certain amount of gunplay that in Canada would be absolutely intolerable, right? Um, so some of it is sort of culturally uh, rooted. But again, you know, Canadians completely accept that I can't just go out and buy a pistol, speaking of anger, um, <laughs> whenever I want. But in the United States, you go anywhere near that, and there's just a great hue and cry. And sometimes, you know, politicians are voted out of office for even suggesting a a two or three day, you know, cooling off period. <laughs> wait well, wait and, for that yeah, handgun and, while we check your background. And, and I mean, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were in Africa and Uganda um, for a few weeks. And I'll say like driving over there and driving here. Now they are very comfortable with the rules that they have there, which are entirely different driving rules from what we have here. And we're comfortable with our driving rules. But I bet you any money that if you flip people and said someone from Canada is going to go drive there and someone from there is going to drive here, both of them would say your rules are stupid and I don't like them because we're yeah. not familiar with yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, and we, 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 we are, you know, there, there are some things about us that are just kind of universal, but we are also incredibly adaptable, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, throw me into a car in the middle of Paris, I'm going to be very, very frustrated, um, but I will figure out what those rules are, and I will honk just like a Parisian in short order, won't be a problem. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but there are some things with which we will not put up, right? Um, mm -hmm. And just just think about all those all those debates, um, uh, you, you know, a simple thing like you're 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 at your home and you discover that, you know, the city, for example, is thinking of changing your garbage day, you know, and you're on a Monday and now it's going to be Tuesday. <laughs> and again, we can feel that's not a big deal. 
but we can feel like I'm so oh, yeah. used to doing it the way, and why me, and so on and so on. And then we write to City Hall and we say, I'm voting you out of office. <laughs> um, so there are the rules which we're talking about. There's also a second part of this that I wonder about, and that is when we put these rules in, and you've touched on this, when we put the rules in, we're taking away decision-making and power from us. When people above us tell us what to do, when we're disempowered, and I'm not even sure if that's a real word, but when that happens, does it trigger something in people? Absolutely. Sure. It, it It's our fundamental sense of who we are. Remember that as a psychotherapist, I would tell you that uh, anger is an incredibly powerful emotion, but it's not usually the first emotion. The first emotion emotion is usually hurt. That a really? right of ours is being impinged upon first, and it hurts us. And our reaction to that is to be angry about it, right? I so, would never have uh, thought that, but you're right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I would have I, thought that could we have so many knee-jerk, angry people, I would have thought that would have been the first place people went. Yeah, yeah, no, but I, you know, just just even think about that somebody somebody encroaches in in what you think of as your lane. You have this bubble around your car that's yours. And somebody coming into it is uh, you know, sort of doing you harm. And so that harm thing is like, oh, and then eh, right, the the finger comes mm-hmm. up and the honk and the gesturing and stuff. So that's a that's a that's us getting frustrated uh at these things. And of course, the other sort of huge factor is that, um, and we've talked about this before, our lives in COVID have been somewhat colorless, right? We haven't been able to to enjoy the usual enjoyments. Um, we can all probably agree that, you know, after you've had a lovely vacation, you come back a little more peaceful and relaxed, and maybe you can take things in stride. That time away hasn't really happened for any of us. So uh, for lots of folks, it's just grind, grind, grind. Mm. And then be frustrated by uh, by more bad news about the Delta variant or some other <laughs> yeah, that's right. that you have to. And, and I love your vacation analogy, except it lasts for about twelve minutes until the first person cuts you off on the way home from the cottage, <laughs> all the all the rest is gone. You're right back to where you were. I, I, I want to take your idea though about the about anger and that emotion one step further because I read something fascinating which I had never considered. Uh, I read something really interesting which said that anger is a social emotion. It requires someone to set it off. And that then seems like if I'm following the logic of what we've been doing with COVID, we've been spending so much time alone. If anger is a social emotion that requires someone to trigger it and I'm alone, shouldn't we be having less anger than more anger during this time? Uh, well, it's a, it's, I guess it's a hypothesis, but the survey suggests that it's, that, that it isn't true. And I, I would say that um, in in a way you're right, but in another way, we're a little bit out of practice uh, with dealing with others too, right? So, so that that kind of turn taking thing, um, and that sort of you know we all have to, you know, again I keep, we keep coming back to traffic, but in order for traffic to advance when it's dense, you have to give, you know, puts and takes, right? Your turn, my turn. We have to sort of work together. Um, when we're isolated, we get out of practice with those things. So getting back into it can be can can be kind of irritating. Um, and mm-hmm. I think you know it's going to take us all probably a while. We've we more than we probably think. We have kind of internalized the six foot rule and the social distancing, right? Um, and when we're walking into a, a, an interior space and somebody now coughs or sneezes. 
that's going to make us all look for a long time in terms of like that shouldn't be happening. We we accepted that before COVID, right? That that would sometimes happen, and you might say, "Bless you." Now it's going to seem like an assault <laughs> on our. Uh, you're right. You're right. A hundred percent. You're right. Absolutely. And I've seen that. I mean, I was in a Costco and someone sneezed. And I don't think they intentionally held their sneeze until they got into Costco near people. I mean, you'd have to be pretty paranoid to suggest I'm going to weaponize my sneezing now. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the reaction was stares, stares right. and glares at this person, uh, which, you know, let me, we only have a couple minutes left. So let me go one step further because we know that over the course of COVID, it's not just us. You look at the world and we've had, you know, situations that have been triggers, George Floyd and the uh, residential schools and things, but the reactions to this have been enormous. They have been, I think, arguably and maybe not even arguably bigger than we've seen in the past. There have been people who have been shot by police, but it didn't lead to the response that the George Floyd thing did. Or, you know, we've known about Indigenous residential schools. It hasn't led to the response now. Is that part of this? Is that anger that we are feeling when you put it together with other people in the public square, does it just spread? Does it become much bigger than it might have been? You know, that's it's almost time to call a sociologist, uh, you know, studies like large societal movements. But I think there is something to what you're saying. I think that uh, one of the things that, that COVID has done is, of course, it's it's gotten us into the news cycle more and more, which is understandable, right? People are looking for information. And second, it, in a way, it sort of clears the deck. It doesn't leave that much room for, I think, our own um, stuff. Again, life being a little bit colorless. So, yeah, we can, we can focus more of our energy on, on the, these, these stories of the day. I don't think it's a bad thing for, for Canadians to reflect on the residential school system and the intense trauma and harm that it caused. So don't, don't misunderstand me. No, but no, I think we're, no. We're feeling that acutely because, uh, at least in part, because COVID is, is the context for some of that news uh, happening to us. Before I let you go, uh, and, and I really do appreciate the time, it's fascinating stuff to talk about. The, the question, of course, then becomes, the end question is, so we've apparently reached this point where we all feel more, or many of us feel more anger and we're more easily triggered and all this. Once life gets back to normal, do we go back to normal or is this something that's now our new reality? Uh, you know, I, I'm torn. It'll it'll take some time. I'm sure that uh, some of us are seeing, uh, you know, scenes is like think about the Euro, um, the, the soccer tournament, where we're starting to see, you know, fans back and Wimbledon and and so on. These these events of the summer, um, you know, I mean, I look on jealously. It looks to me like people are having a pretty good time in the stands um, as as countries return to normal. So my prediction would be it's going to take a little bit of time. We all are going to have a little bit of induced what I think of as agoraphobia, so you know, which is a reluctance or fear of leaving our, our homes and, and going near somebody who might be sneezing. Um, but I think we're also going to learn that, well, uh, that's, that's safe, right? That, that, that COVID will remain under control or become endemic in the fall. So I think that by the fall, I think a lot of us will be back, back in the swing of it. That's Let us prediction. hope so. Let us hope so for sure. Uh, Dr. Peter Beeling, professor at McMaster University. Really appreciate the discussion. Fascinating talk. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.
This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.